good deeds and serving orphans and widows, but religious in the sense that many think that what they do in life can find merit and favor with God. Many in our culture today who even claim the idea of God's grace being the only effectual reality of salvation, that God's merciful love and His work, many of them still struggle with the idea that it is all of grace and that there's not something that the creature must encroach upon God's righteousness and to obtain something from Him. Beloved, it is all just by the mercies of God and His power that we sit here today with understanding of this. For it is just as easy for God to have let us fall by the way of culture and by the way of tradition and by the way of history that when we see large movements of what some would call gospel-powered movements, oftentimes, beloved, it's not gospel, it's garbage. Usually by the time the population is on board with a particular Christian thought, it's already tainted. It's already changed. It's out of sorts of orthodoxy. And that's what's happening in Ephesus. That's what's happening. Being Christian is something that's either really traumatic, horrifying, hostile, or it's something that's very hip and happening and encouraging. Imagine the days of the apostles. We think there's hustle and bustle today in the context of Christendom. Beloved, there will never be the hustle and bustle of the day of the first apostles and the last apostles. See, we often try to recreate that experience. But we're supposed to look upon that experience through the history of the Bible. And then from that experience and from that, those essays and from those letters and from that history, we are to peer into the face of God himself. To see Him, to know His truth, that God is truth. He's not the God that tells truth. He is truth. He tells of Himself. Christ is the truth. Even when we learn from Paul and from John and from James, we are learning from God. And no man living today, nor shall ever live, can ever hold that authority. Because the apostles alone were sent by Christ and they wrote And that is the end of it. So now the authority of Christ himself rests in the pages and the pen of the apostles and the elders of God's people, the overseer servants of God's congregations are the ones who then yield the responsibility and the authority to continue to oversee the adherence to the commands of Christ for his people. To oversee the work of evangelism through the people of Christ. And beloved, I could sit here today and talk about just the very fact of how we've set this room up not being biblical. But what a waste of time. What we are and whose we are must be biblical. What we do as we grow and understand more of what God has called us to will become more biblical. And when we see things that are just silly... We'll lay them aside. We'll put away childish things and we'll move on to that which is enriching and edifying and glorifying so that we might be more at peace in our heart and among each other. Paul says to young Timothy here, let's look at verses 3 through 6 again. First Timothy. Let's just read through the first 
seven verses again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. Young brother Timothy, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may command certain persons not to teach anything different in their teaching, nor to devote themselves to nonsense, history, tradition, mysteries, mysticism, and everything else, genealogies, law writing, arguments, divisions, and other such foolishness which promote speculation. What is a speculation? I think this is the way it goes. I'm not quite sure. It's an assumption. It's a not certainty. Those promote speculations. Rather than promoting the stewardship from God that is by faith, the aim of our command is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons shall be unnamed by swerving from these three things have wandered away into worthless, empty dialogue. They really want to be teachers of truth. They want to be teachers of the law of God and His grace and His work without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are confidently asserting truth. All right, now I put my little translative emphasis on these things and I put my commentary in there as well so that I didn't have to go back and preach the last two weeks so we could just be caught up. That's where we are. I've had someone this week, this week message me and say, you know, it seems like your preaching in Timothy is a little hard. That it seems to come from a negative standing. Of course it does. Of course it does. Other than Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, what occasion was there that wasn't in the middle of all kind of garbage? So if the preaching of a letter doesn't carry the same timbre, the same essence of its intention, then it's false teaching. I'm going to say that again. If an elder teaches Paul's writing to Timothy, or to Galatia, or to Rome, or to Colossae, and it does not carry with it the same purpose and tone and sound in which it was written, then it's false teaching. That's what twisting of Scripture does. It takes a sentence or six out of an entire letter and it boils it out into philosophical ideologies and expresses it in a way that sounds biblical because, of course, the text came from Bible. That doesn't make something biblical just because we use a Bible text. And then everything starts to unwind. How do we know something is unbiblical? Because it unwinds the fabric of the unity of the gospel of grace. In practice or thought. In idea. Now, well, that's what truth does. It divides. Now, you're the divider. When we insist on expressing things that we think about 
outside the context of God's strict commands. I want to say that. And I'm talking to us, Grace True Church. Because we are troubled in our society just like Timothy was troubled in his society. See, this letter is written to give peace to Timothy. So that the task he has been commanded to do by Christ, by his apostle, thus by Christ, is one of peace and one of patience and one of great encouragement and one that will establish the promises of God for God's people without anything that Timothy has to offer. Timothy had no skill whatsoever in debate or theological uh, discussion or, or, um, or the ability to lead or manage conflict. He had everything he needed. And we see that over in these letters, right? For all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable and useful for teaching, for the instruction of righteousness, for rebuke, for correction, for maintaining unity. So that the man of God, the elder of God, the overseer of God will be and is successful in everything he touches and says. Now wouldn't you like that to be your reality? That everything you do is successful? As a pastor, Jesse and I were talking about this week, sometimes I feel like I just, I've never done anything right. And if you don't believe, if I don't believe myself, I can just ask some people. They'll tell you what you're not doing right. But the cool thing is, and I say cool because that's the generation I come from, the cool thing is, is that God's word alone prescribes that which I should be doing, and when I follow it, despite what the culture thinks, I'm successful. I'm not successful because your joy is full. I'm not successful because your doctrine is pure. I'm not successful because everybody's getting along. I'm not successful because everybody has everything they need. I'm successful when I proclaim God's word according to its commands. And that when I, along with the other elder brothers of this church, hold all of us accountable to do, listen, to do what is told to us to do in the Bible. That's what it means to be the church of Christ. We follow the commands of the Bible. Now I can hear the legalism claims running over the interwebs already. Turn the channel. There's thousands of options for heresy. Just go find the one you like. I don't care. Blah, 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 blah. You know, like the peanut guy. Remember I said last week? If you don't like what I'm saying, eat someplace else. I'm going to stick to the Word of God as it's written, not as it's traditionally understood. And beloved, that means that I have had to eat crow a million times over. That means I have had to change my understanding of things and my ideas about things. And not only doctrine and how it needs to be understood and taught, but also in practice, how it should be applied and commanded to God's people. And there's some things that never change. The temperament, not the temper, but the temperament that I must have as an elder must not be one of burden. Because I have the ability in my flesh and the prowess, if you will, in my stature along with my ability to be an orator in the context of persuasion to manage you exactly how I want you to be. What does that mean? I can make you feel what I want you to feel. Because I'm bold in my ability to communicate. And I can stomp my feet and slam my hand. I mean, that just seems like power, doesn't it? You know? 
Isn't that what it does? That's what it does. That's not God. That's stupid. You see? That's not what Paul wrote to Timothy, told Timothy to do. No one in the flesh but Jesus himself, the Christ, has the authority or the responsibility to turn tables over in God's house. Any man but Jesus who desires to turn over tables is a wicked sinner in that desire. Any man who desires to uproot someone's reputation is the devil himself whispering in the ears of others. Any man who refuses the peaceable solitude of God's tender shepherding through the word is an abomination to the nose of God Almighty. See, even saying that that way, whoa, wow. I mean, you know what? I can't manipulate you like that. You don't take my word for it just because it's bold. Take God at his word. Mercy, mercy, mercy. A friend of mine's daughter, a friend of Robin and I, and she was a friend too, but years and years ago when Katie was an infant, became pregnant. Just out of the blue, you know. And that young girl was brought before the church to get ahead of the garbage of the wicked souls of so-called Christians who would love to tear her apart. What creature tears things apart? A wolf. And that's what Paul's writing about now. This is, has, it, has, it, has an illustration here. And this young girl stood before a church and her father, on her behalf, told her sin, and then the church embraced her and loved her and held her. And it was told that if anyone had a problem with reconciliation, the door swung the other direction. You see, that's mercy. Mercy. Oh, Lord, why do we have to have historically in the higher criticism that Johannine comma, why do we have to have that, 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 that problem there with, with John 7 and 8 where <laughs> it's not necessarily apostolic? But it did happen. Jesus did say, if you're innocent of all sin, throw the rock. Do you know we're not to call another man out in his sin if we have any sin in our lives? We're not to meddle in the lives of other people when they're sinning unless they come to us and confess that sin that we might have an opportunity to restore them to joy and to peace and to mercy. What is the answer for sin? The mercy of God. The love of God is the answer for our sin, the answer for our heresy, the answer for our problems, the answer for our lack of joy. The love of God and His mercy toward us, His people is the only answer at all ever. But beloved, the wolves and the snakes and the God bless America brothers have disturbed that by not listening to the Scripture. Lord, have mercy on me. How many times this week I have not listened to the Scripture? <laughs> and some of you are thinking, well, he's talking about me, I'm talking about me. I'm not pointing my preaching, I'm talking about me. Patience. Be an example of patience and long-suffering. This is the nature of God Almighty. 
This is the exposure of His self-revelation through His Son, Jesus Christ. And yeah, we can argue it's for His self-love and self-glory. Okay, and then an entire millennia or two millennia of writing and instruction on now we are to live in the like manner, though we don't think that's necessary. I want you to teach these people not to teach different doctrine, Paul says. And that the aim, verse 5 is where I'm going to be today. The aim of our charge is love that proceeds from a pure heart, that comes from a good conscience, that is birthed through a sincere faith. This is practical theology, beloved. This is practical theology. This is understanding God in application. That's what this letter was written for. It's not a theological treatise, though it contains it. It was written because Timothy was stressed out and about to be more stressed out. He was about to have to deal with all this stuff. He was about to, and, and, and I think, and I don't know, but I, I imagine that maybe throughout all this stuff that here is Timothy and he's thinking, okay, I got some missionary things I need to do in other places. And when Paul was going to Macedonia, he, he and Paul were talking and Timothy's like, you know what? I think I'm going to come with you. And Paul said, no, you're going to go back to Ephesus because your job's not done there. There, there needs to be more elders there before you tear out and there's some things that you need to charge people with and to charge them with love and that's what he's saying there he's saying charge them not to think this way and to teach this way but charge them to love one another now see and I played around the idea of charge the last last week but the word literally means command them with authority demand of them to stop thinking and teaching differently and demand of them that they love one another. Because if they stop this nonsense, that is love. All right, now there's the whole sermon. That's the whole argument that Paul has made for Timothy here. It's the whole instruction. Beloved, why are we so scared of the gospel? As a culture, why are we so scared of the gospel? Why are we scared of God's patience? Why are we scared of God's love? Why are we scared of God's grace? But yet we hold it as the effectual means of our salvation. But yet we don't think that it's effectual for our marriages and effectual for our relationships and effectual for our conflicts and effectual for false teaching. If God is sovereign and he is loved and all the things that he does for his people brings together for good. I told a sister this week in the church, I said, you know, it'd be great if God would just give us a pamphlet in the mail, a little four page, you know, trifold or quadfold. And it says, my ultimate plan in these circumstances. He lays it out in picture form, little sub-captions and stuff. Pretty simple for a guy like me. I love charts and pictures. This is how I'm going to work this horror and this damage and this destruction for your joy and my glory. And here, don't worry about it, and it's all going to flow down to this amazing little star of glory at the end of the back page. But he doesn't do that, does he? No, he does even better. He authoritatively puts his foot down and says, I am God and there is no other. And all that I've ordained shall come to pass and no one can stop me. And everything I've ordained is for your good. Trust me in that. 
If I can create the world and separate light from darkness, I can separate light in the life of men from the darkness. And I can bring you to myself, and I promise you I will be just and righteous in doing so, and I will show you the way of my promise. Stand there. Be still and know that I am God. So he has written us a pamphlet, 66 of them. But I want the easy, I want the cheat sheet. James, you broke your foot because I'm going to do this in your life. Now, it doesn't work like that. James, you've been sick eight months out of the last 12. I've been sick. This is the first week since March that I have not had pain. The first week that I have been able to just freely go about town without worry of how close I was to my house. For those of you who don't know what diverticulitis is. And then a gastro infection. It's the first week. And it may be the last one. You see what I mean? You don't know. But I'll tell you this, whether we are ill or whether we are well, God's promises stand. Whether we have a job or we don't have a job, whether we are, uh, our relationship is sound or our relationships are in a mess, God is sovereign and his promises stand. His word here, teaching the elders of the church of Ephesus, because he taught Timothy to teach other elders, and now as an elder I have to read this, and this is where I get my instruction. And this is where you get to read and know that what I'm doing is actually here. And, and then also, I get to teach you what the Scripture teaches about what elders should be doing so that you may know the difference between the role of the elder and the role of the sheep. And I always find it strange, you know. I'm a bride, but I'm a husband. I'm a sheep, but I'm a shepherd. I'm the body, but I'm a head. You see? The word husband means head, andros. That's what it means. It's, it's just a strange dichotomy. And it goes back to the picture of the Old Testament where all these shadows just pointed to the truth. So all our relationships, everything that we do in the context of Christian living as the church, no matter what conflict comes our way, we've been given the peaceable, simple instructions, the commands of what love demands. And love demands certain actions. Do you know that it is a sin to ostracize somebody out of your life that has not been formally and publicly removed from the body of Christ through church discipline. People who leave our congregation are in sin, no matter their cause. And when you get upset with your neighbor, and you go, I'm not speaking to them, I'm not coming back to church because of that person, blah, blah, blah. That's sinful. Until oversight, according to the commands of Christ, has been given to the assembly about these matters, clearly shown in the Bible. We don't have to talk about it and philosophize about it and have meetings about it. The Bible tells us clearly how to handle it. We handle it and we're patient in it. But when we ostracize other people, we are calling ourselves God. Because we're saying, I am righteous enough to say who is reprobate. Now, if that isn't demonic speak, I don't know what is. So I want you to see, the charge here is to command love. Verse 5, the reason that heresies exist, beloved, is because love does not. You understand that? The reason that heresies happen and divisions happen and false teachers happen is because the people who aren't willing to lay down their ideas are not loving anybody but themselves and their ideas. But they say, oh, I'm loving the Lord. No, you're not. You are not loving the Lord if you are not sacrificially Loving your neighbor. 
Because your soul feels that you have for some divine entity that you've created in your own mind. Because the true Bible, the true God of the Scripture expresses Himself in His law, in His Word, in His promises, in His work of redemption. God is grace. He doesn't have it. He is it. God is love. He doesn't have love. He's not got a bag of love and a bag of hate. He is love. He is righteousness. See, we've, we've made Christianity a mainline cult by ignoring the teaching of Scripture, by thinking that we're in love with the Lord when we're hateful, hating, and doing things that aren't our responsibility. False teaching and divided opinions, difference of thought, strong desire for one's own way. That's what heresy means. A strong opinion, a difference of thought, a divided opinion, wanting one's own way, that's a heresy. One's own thinking about something, that's what heresy means. Don't go to Webster. Use the context. Use the context of Scripture. So teaching is both what is truth concerning information about what is truth, and it's also the application of what is truth. So God is truth. Thus, revelation is God himself in word and in deed. Who God is and what he's done. This is revelation. And God is truth, evidenced by his love. The revelation of God is evidenced by his love. Thus, love is our response. Now, we've gone through 1 John. We've gone through the Gospel of John. We've gone through uh, Ephesians. We know this stuff. This is review, beloved. This is, this is gospel preaching. This is Christ-centered truth. And love is a command, a strict command. Love, these things I tell you to command, not to be taught or thought. And how do we command? We teach. Brother, don't say these things. Brother, don't do these things. Brother, the Bible says no. The Bible says yes. And I'm going to say to you that those who hear the voice of their shepherd know that what I'm saying is true. And every cult in the world has that same claim. The difference maker is let's tear out 1 Timothy and hold it and don't use anything else. Can we prove what I just said? Absolutely. Don't take my word for it. Look at the context. Let the Spirit of God teach you. Love is a command, a strict command. What's the command here? Don't teach these things. Don't think these things. Don't talk about these things. Don't interact with these things. Hold fast. And this command, this charge is a strong and authoritative teaching that is held by Timothy. And who is Timothy? He's an overseer of the church. So here Paul is telling the elders of the church that they have the responsibility to command the church in the context of what is good and bad, according to Paul's writing, according to the prophets, according to the whole of Scripture. Now see, some people have heard me say that through the years. Oh, see there, look at there, you're lording over people. No, lording over people is extra biblical. Lording over people is not patient. Lording over people is, is when the pastors begin to make it difficult for folks because they're not doing what is required 
fast enough. That's lording over people. Or they're asking them to do what's not required. And it all boils down to stewardship. See verse 4? All these divisions, all this unlovingness, all this stuff is rooted in a lack of love. It promotes speculations rather than promoting the stewardship from God that is by faith. What is this stewardship? The elders of the church have the authority to tell the church how it ought to fix, do, and live according to the apostles' teaching. And anyone who doesn't obey that is to be ostracized. Not just from this building, but from our lives. You understand that? If you're my fishing buddy, and we hang out every day of the week, and you reject the authority of Christ, and you have been expelled from my spiritual life, then the only time that we're going to get together is when you want to repent and be restored to Christ and His people, you see. And the aim of that is love. Why? Because we're stewards. Stewardship. The stewardship of God, given by God, which is of faith. The stewardship from God. God has given the word to this church. God has given the elders to his church. God has given the deacons. And we're going to start talking about deacons in the next few months. We've got to have some deacons. To his church. God has given Christ to his church. And God has given his church to Christ. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. So everything that God has given us, we are stewards of. We don't get to determine how we manage those things, for God has already sent us the 66 pamphlets, or more, more particularly, the New Testament letters, on how we are to steward what God has given us. We are not our own. This is not our church. This is Christ's body. One small part of it. And the only way that God is glorified in Christ's body when we assemble is that the truth is understood and taught and held to and that when divisions of any kind are, 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 are encroached, that we approach them according to the gospel, according to the prescription of the New Testament, not according to tradition and human philosophy. Stewardship is administration or oversight of what is not ours. We are not our own. Part of our vision as a church and part of our prayer from the very beginning, almost, you know, we're in our 11th year, is that we would see a gospel influence amongst God's people, amongst the sheep of Christ, in the communities around us, not just this congregation. Why? Because that's myopic. Yes, I would love to, to, to be to the place where we could see a lot of people, a lot more people, but beloved, we, we can't hardly take care of one another. And the, only, and the world's answer is administrating things not according to Scripture. So if we're going to administrate the body of Christ according to Scripture, we have to institute that which God has promised. We have to train more elders and we have to train deacons to serve and do the work of the ministry and to take care of the needs of the church because each one of us could probably have one other family that we can be close with all the time. And then we could probably have another family that we might could pay attention to. But when we start getting into three, 
especially some of our families. Some of our families are churches in and of themselves, you know? I mean, when we, start, when we start branching out, we are watering our ministry down terribly. So we have to be intentional about that. Part of our vision is also to plant churches and to be partnering in gospel ministry with other churches in the area that hold to the truth, that believe the truth. As fits the occasion. And we should not forget that the elders are sent to the communities of faith. The communities of saints, not just a particular congregation. Though those particular congregations all must have elders, those elders must also work together amongst other congregations. Beloved, this has always been part of what we wanted to see. And the last two years have been very difficult, not only for our own spiritual family, but for many. Believe it or not, there are small pockets of sovereign grace believers around the communities who have no shepherds and have no pastors and have no one to help steward their lives. We need to continue to pray for sound gatherings that have no spiritual stewards. And we need to remember and be very mindful of God's purposes for the church so that we might work together, not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others and other people who we have yet to even meet in the faith, some who have yet to been called to faith. One thing that Paul will tell Timothy, as we'll see in the months to come, is he says, do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. So together, we are stewards of one another. We are stewards of the gospel. We are stewards of the word of God. And we are stewards in our commitment to serve one another. And when we do that, we are actually serving the Lord. So the aim of all this interaction, all that being said, the aim of all of this in the commands, in the charge, is love. The charge is love, don't do this. Because when you do this, you're not loving. You see that? If we don't see that, I can't go forward. You might say, well, I don't really agree with that. That's what Paul's saying. I mean, we might not agree with it, but we can't deny that's what he's saying. The reason that we're charging them to stop doing this is love, because we want them to love one another. If I slap you all when you come in the door, let me show you some tough love. I mean, you know, all you snoozing out there, that's what's going on, you know. That's not, that's not love. If you tell me you're hungry, and uh, what does Jesus say? And they give you a rock, snake. What is that? Sarcasm. That's not love. Meme culture is not love. It's mockery. The aim of all this interaction, this, this command is love. No other motive, and all other motives are not of God. All other motives are not of God, period. The replacement of other teachings is to love one another in submission to the truth. But no, what happens is sometimes we see the false teacher, and they very well could be a wolf intentionally coming in to start their own church. That happens. We'll see that, right? And I think maybe the two that Paul names out of the hundreds or dozens or so that are involved... Of course, but the ones that are involved, the, those, some. Paul doesn't want to bring reproach upon them because his, he knows that God will restore them to the truth. And then to not take that testimony of restoration as a loving and awesome celebration of rejoicing, but to then take it a step further. But now that we've cleared that up, we've got to deal with who you were yesterday. That's demonic. Faith is not knowing what we weren't in any particular historical position or theological position. 
Because, beloved, the Galatians were lining up for circumcision because they feared judgment. And Paul was very passionately opposed to not calling them brethren. And the reason that we've come to that place in our world and our culture is because uneducated, and that's a bad way to say it, people who are ignorant of the word of God in the context of a proper ecclesiology, in other words, who the church is and how we ought to operate, have decided to take upon themselves the role of God himself to make judgment against the hearts of men based on what their assumptions are, based on inferences that they have concluded through a lot of pretexts outside the context of Scripture. And it is not love. And the yeah buts will resound. I think yeah buts are a are the take a number for church discipline. <laughs> you know? So love, then, to love one another is the replacement of these other teachings, of these other ideologies, and it puts down all offenses and removes all barriers to unity. Love is brought about by what? There's some things here. Sincere faith. Knowing what God has revealed in His Word and resting in what God has taught us through His Scripture. This includes all that God says about Himself as a triune being. And that all that God charges or commands for His people to do in the New Testament. Faith rests and desires to seek out God's Word in life as truth. Knowing facts as true is not faith. And resting in truth without its, application, without its application of love is heresy. Love, not learning, is the motif here. Paul charges love, not learning. He said you need to learn Christ who displays His glory and His love for His people and live accordingly and you'll learn together by learning the love of Christ and living it out according to the Scripture. He said I'm not talking about extra-biblical and superfluous things. I'm talking about what is revealed to us in the Bible. God charges love over learning. Because without the first, there is no genuine act. There's no genuine life of faith, the book of James. Faith without works is no faith at all. It's dead. It's worthless. It's a dead corpse sitting at the table. It's hiring the janitor, putting a mop in his hand, and he's decaying. He's going to become part of the mess on the floor rather than cleaning it up. So the command is to love. How? We go back to the other way now. By adhering to the truth. Because the antithesis of don't teach error is to believe in the truth, right? Believe in the truth. So when we are insistent upon a particular doctrinal position, we better make sure that it is the, in a paramount way that it is a clear and simply contextual expression that must be taught to the church. That's why I speak very little about a lot of my philosophical theology. Because i got some ideas. Some of you have told me some of your ideas. If I got up here and told everybody, the World Wide Web would put an H on your head. Heretic. And by doing so, hate you. And thus disobey Christ himself. 
but they're not real Christians. Jesus commands us to love our enemies too. And if we really love the gospel, we'd be more concerned about preaching the truth that God, through the hearing of the truth, would convert his sheep to the truth than we would be fighting over what's not true. It's just a little bit of first grade logic. So we adhere to the truth and we put away the error. We bear witness of Christ in truth and in deed. The first being necessary for love to be true. Then all preaching and all teaching flows from love. For it is the central message that we know of God and His Word. It is the very essence of Him who gives life. Christ laid down His life. Therefore, God is love. Therefore, He first loved us. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of righteousness. Therefore, love is the glory of the good report of God. And I mean, I could give you, there's probably eight scripture references that I just alluded to there. 1 Corinthians 13 showing us very clearly. We went through that in John's gospel. I mean, in in 1 John, remember, we went there. Love is patient and kind and does not insist upon its own way. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Beloved, if God has wiped away the record of sin in the blood of Jesus Christ, the death of Christ, when somebody talks about the blood, it means somebody's died. They didn't prick his finger, they killed him. Then who are we to hold a record of wrongs? Record of falsehoods. Paul wants the church to be at love with one another. And most importantly, he wants these heretics to be at love with Christ. And to be in unity with the body. But two of them refuse it. So church discipline expels them. Then they're named. Once it's all said and done. And why does he name them? He tells us, and we'll get into this. That God may what? Restore them. What does that restoration look like? They come back and say, you're right, I'm sorry. I love you. And I believe the truth and I won't teach this stuff anymore. We take their word for it. Because unless we're God, we don't know the hearts of men. Sincere faith, love, a pure heart. What is that? A pure heart is from which love flows. A pure heart is as a heart that has no sin, a heart that is not wicked, a heart that does not seek its own way. A pure heart is a love, is a loving heart. A pure heart is the center. Now, what is a heart? You know, okay, let's get Plato and all the others out there. Maybe we can get into some Kant and some others. And we could talk about the existential ideas of, of what heart and conscience and soul, blah, blah, blah. The Bible doesn't go there. The Bible just expresses it as the center of the essence of a person. The way you think. There you are. Jesus says it, right? Matter of fact, je pense donc je suis. I think, therefore I am. This is the essence of who we are. What we think about comes out of our mouth. What we contemplate is who we are. We're known by what we love. Look at your Facebook profiles and your Twitter profiles and your playlists. And you can look and you can see seasons, right? Oh, this is back when I was really into punk. This is back when I was into classical. Celtic. <laughs> you know, there's a whole, you know, you just, you just keep going. I was into jazz, and I was into fusion, and I was into this. It's your playlist. They, they change, and they flow, but you can tell, you can remember where you were. Look at old pictures, the way we used to style our hair. 
See, I, I stood with this style about 19, and I've stayed with it. And when I'm 90, if the Lord lets me live, I'll have the same old hairstyle. There's any up there. You know, you just sort of stick. But all the years before, I mean, oh my goodness. Big bell-bottom corduroys and the big collars that touch the belt. My mama dressed me like that. I was fly. You can look back at these seasons of life and see where you've come because of the expression of who you are. Beloved, we, we, we're going to go through seasons of certain things. And when people come into our lives and they begin to impart other ideas, even other truths that aren't necessarily accurate, we're going to change some things. We're going to change the way we think. And then all of a sudden we're going to be known for what we think and what we say. That's why it is so important for Christians to be quiet. Especially in talking to other people about other people. That is wicked. And I'm going to be hitting that hard in the next six years. Because I think that that is one of the worst things that's ever happened in the people, in the, in the, in the church of Jesus Christ, is that people are talking too much about other people. And don't call it concern, burden, prayers. It's murder. Oh, brother so-and-so, you need to pray for him. He told me yesterday he worshipped the devil. And then a month later, God wipes that away, and then everybody's looking at him like, is he still in the children's ministry? <laughs> you know, shouldn't have said nothing. Oh, so-and-so told me to pray because he's got a problem, you know. That's not prayer. That's gossip. Enough of that. A pure heart. A pure heart. Some will consider their actions to introduce new teaching or deeper ideas loving, but it's not. It's not pure. It is not love. Insistence is not love. Thus it is not pure. A pure heart is a heart that knows love. How do you say that? Because that's what John says that faith does. It knows God and God is love. What's the quintessential reality of faith? What does it point to? What does it rest? Upon which does it look? The love of God in Christ Jesus. So if you know nothing else about God and His sovereignty or His creation or anything else, you know nothing else about the essence of His judicial arguments that given, you've never read Paul, but you've read John's narrative. You might not even understand Judaism whatsoever, but there's one thing that you know if you've been born again, and that is the love of God in Jesus Christ. And that God loves His people through His Son, and His love is revealed in the death of Jesus on their behalf. This is the central message that we know of God in His Word. This is the message that we have heard from Him that was from the beginning, that in Him is no darkness. In Him is light. So a pure heart knows this love. And a pure heart knows that he can't make himself pure. Because some people will hear me say, no, nope, he's preaching law now. We've got to do something. Well, well, you do have to do something. That's not preaching law. It's preaching love. Because God has loved us, we first love us. If you say you love God but hate your brother, you're a liar. About what? That you love God. Why? Because the only way, the only way, there's only one way to love God, and that is to love God others. There's only one way to serve God, and that is to serve people. That's why so many pastors and congregations and so many aloof little cult circles, they're all about themselves. 
They're all about themselves and their mantras and their doctrines and their glory. And, and, and they only attract people who agree with their stances. But they never, ever, ever, ever have true love. I said some time years before, and I meant this in an illustrative way, that it appears sometimes that the cults do better than loving than the church. Now, they're not. They're not loving at all because they don't have the truth. But yet, in their actions, they appear that way. So we have the true love of God. By all means, we should display it better than the cults, than the unbelievers of the world, than the religious zealots. For if we do not have it, we're not even allowed to fellowship until we repent of the idea that we don't need to. A pure heart. No man can make himself pure. Thus, Christ imputed his own goodness and his own purity and his own righteousness to our account. So, our pure heart and seeking after purity in love for one another is our love for God because of his love for us. The imputation or the counting to our credit. If you went and wrote a check for $783,000 out of your checking account today and you made it out to David. He would thank you for it. But if you didn't have that money, it's going to be sore problems if he buys a mansion with it or a new set of tires or whatever. Some really nice tires. And it's about to bounce and he's about to lose everything he's got. But somebody else in the church has that kind of money and they just say, you know what? Take it out of my account. Put it in there. It's not that. It's not even close to that, but that's what imputation is like. You take all of this value, all of this worth, all of this righteousness, all of this goodness, this divine essence, and you credit it to the creature who deserves it not because of the love of God alone. God grace to his people. That's good news. That's the gospel. There's no other message under the sun except Christ and him crucified. And why is this effectual? Why was it even accomplished? Because of God's love for his people. Yes, and God's love for himself, but these things aren't separate. A pure heart. We can't become pure. So we understand righteousness and purity and love because of what God has shown us by faith. How from his love toward us, we now have a pure heart. That is grace and love to his elect in His death, by His Spirit, to bring us to the knowledge of His glory, His revelation. And then this other thing, this love, this pure heart, a good conscience, sincere faith, this good conscience. You know, we have a lot of conversations about good conscience. This is the command. Love one another out of a good conscience, out of a pure heart, out of a sincere faith, out of the gospel. This is the same as having a pure heart. Good conscience, pure heart, same thing. Same Stand, same work of God. The commands are not burdensome. What are the commands? To love your brothers. To lay down your life as Jesus laid down His. The same as a pure heart is that one's thoughts and guilt are clear, are clean. Our sins have been wiped away. We have a good conscience. 
First, that the truth of Christ permeates the essence of our lives by faith, which is given to us by God. Second, that we know and comprehend with all the saints. You see, I'm quoting some other scriptures, but this is Ephesians 1 and 2. We comprehend with all the saints the power, the depth, the breadth, the height, the awesomeness of God's love and the power of God's cleansing forgiveness. A pure heart is a good conscience and vice versa. One is not had without the other. And we're forgiven by the love of God, the death of Jesus Christ, and we're settled in our hearts by the love of God, which is the life of Jesus Christ, as God grants us faith to rest in His promises and in His provision and in the teaching of His Word through the apostles and the commands of Christ, which are not burdensome for His people. So we see, remember in Hebrews, I'll read Hebrews 6 in a few minutes, in Hebrews 10. A good conscience knows that one's actions and then one's teachings are at peace with God. According to the scripture. Not according to what one feels, but according to what God has promised. A good conscience knows when it is loving. And knows when it is insistent upon its own way. Why? Because it has received the love of God and understands it. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. So we have this sure. It's one of my favorite passages that John didn't write. A sure and steady anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In Hebrews 10, then he adds, verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, listen to these words. Since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the death of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, us, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good works, not neglecting to assemble together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day of Christ drawing near. A sincere faith is a faith that does not act as an actor, but a faith that lives in truth according to the hope of Christ. A sincere faith lives out if it's to be effective. We see Peter writing that, right? If we're to be effective in the faith, we do these things. Don't conflate your rebirth and your eternal destiny with your practical living out the faith. Because a lot of Christians are never taught this. Because all they want to do is sit still and hear about the fact that they're going to heaven by themselves. But the sheep who get a taste of the word of God, who learn and grow by the Spirit, begin to understand the necessity of God's provision in the church. A sincere faith does not permit false teaching. See, some people have probably already accused me of placating to false teaching. A sincere faith does not permit false teaching in word or deed. Because if we hold to the truth and someone else is different, we don't permit that. Love doesn't say it's okay. 
Love says, I command you to not say that again. Love says, I command you to not do that again. Because you teaching and doing these things is not love. I command you by the authority of Christ to love one another. You see that? Why is that so difficult? It's not. It's not difficult by faith. It's impossible otherwise. Because no matter how well we may get it today, we may have some fellowship after service, you know, we're going to eat together, some of us, and, 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 and everything, and we'll be good, and we'll love one another, and it'll all be good, but tomorrow, go down the drain. So who is the faithful brother? It's Jesus. Who is the faithful lover? It's Jesus. Who is the true husband? It's Jesus. Who is the one who truly lays down his life? Jesus. That's why our salvation is dependent upon his righteousness to our account, not our getting it right. But because he has saved us, therefore, we are to strive for these things. And a sincere faith does not permit falsehood, does not permit error and permit heresy. It does not permit the heresy of unlovingness either. So we are to follow the prescription found in the Word of God in dealing with these things. A sincere faith rests on the one true God and His powerful promises to His people. A sincere faith is bold. But boldness in Christ is humble and gentle. It's humble and gentle in proclamation because God's Word is what changes a person's understanding, not our tenacity, not our personal consequences, not even church discipline to the end of it which is reconciliation sincere faith is gentle in proclamation it does not endorse other teachings or engage in vain philosophies or attempt to go deeper in a hidden knowledge also a sincere faith rests in the understanding of love as its constant action I want to say that again sincere faith rests in the understanding of that love of love as its constant action. Solidea Gloria, you know, the historical mon uh, uh, phrase of for the glory of God only. Sometimes we forget that the way that God is glorified in us is our love for one another, even in our teaching, even in a correction, even in our rebuke. And love is always patient and gentle and kind and seeking restoration. And love is never exercised in fear. John would say that, right? Perfect love casts away fear. So if we're fearful that if we don't do something a certain way to establish some type of purity in the church and we do it in contrast to that which is taught to us, because we're fearful, then it's not of God. Therefore, it is not of love. And of course, it's not of faith. And it's deceptive faith. It's deceptive faith to ignore the whole counsel of God's glory. It's a deceptive faith to say, I am saved and I trust in the sovereignty of God and my redemption through His justice and His mercy and His grace. But I will not submit to the teaching of that instruction because I don't like the guy who's telling it to me. I've been working with my cats for a while now and I still can't get them to quote scripture. But when they can, I'm bringing one up here. Million hits. The preaching cat. Love, therefore. We're stewardships of love. We're stewards of love. We have stewardship of love. Stewards of peace. Stewards of hope. Stewards of glory. Stewards of truth. It's all or none. Period. Love, therefore. 
Love comes from these three things in the assembly. And it motivates all of our interaction according to the gospel. Our love for others, not just our love for God, for our love for God is our love for others in word and in deed. And elders, see, according to this teaching, are commanded to oversee these things. And those who listen and obey will be unified and rejoice. And those who forsake God's command will suffer the outcome of despair. Not death, not eternal damnation, of despair. Joylessness, fear, frustration, anger, bitterness, malice, and the like. Disobeying God's commands is swerving from the truth of pure hearts, good consciences, and sincere faith and love. And all sin comes from self-interest and pride and self-glory. The desire to be right, the desire to know more, a longing for one's own way, even in the name of Christ. But only those who hear and heed the scripture will have fellowship in the family of faith. The family of faith is local. I'll talk about this next week a little more, but listen to this. The family of faith is local and the family of faith is visible. And that's the only thing the Bible teaches about the family of faith, the assembly of faith. Local and visible. That means that the elders of the local communities have the call and the responsibility of maintaining the unity of the peace alone. Nobody else has the responsibility in overseeing the church or bringing discipline to the church. That's it. Well, I don't like that. Well, I'm sorry. There are thousands of other places and people for you to associate with that will let you have your way. Go ye there. And I hate to sound like that, but that's sort of the sentiment of Paul when people refuse. What happens in 1 Corinthians? Well, this guy would refuse his incestuous, to lay down his incestuous relationships with his stepmother. And he's been told, he's been warned, he's been told, and the elders are like, I don't know what to do. And what does Paul tell them? Take the brother before the church and kick him out so that God will teach him not to blaspheme. God will teach him not to love himself so that his soul would be saved. And there's a whole other sermon in that. But those who hear and heed the scripture will have fellowship in the unity of faith and the family of faith. The family of faith is local and visible according to scripture and oversight of the flock is to be loving, sincere, and patient which is to be biblical. Thus, gospel love is the root of God's salvation. It is His glory revealed to His people. And we are stewards one to another of God's grace and God's love and God's peace. We all have peace and are given faith to love and faith to know and faith to rest in God's salvation and in God's commandments and His promises we know that through His love, we are being reconciled by faith. The gospel. The command to do what is right and to teach what is right. After all, is not teaching, doing. So let us do all things out of love. Because God has given His Son for us in His love and nothing can separate the love of God from his people. Remember that as we take the Lord's table today. Let's pray.
We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to worship. I thank you, Father, for the clarity of what you've written and the simplicity of what you've instructed. But, Lord, it is impossible that in our flesh we could rightly divide this without your power. And so, Lord, where I have erred, where I have misunderstood, correct me, teach me. Guide me that I may not guide your people into falsehood, but, Father, that we may be unified in the truth. But, Lord, one thing is for certain. There is a means and a method to the promises that you have given your people in living in this life after the rebirth. And so, Lord, help us to grow, to understand it, and to live it out, and to not worry about the glory that comes from others, but, Father, to be reminded of the glory that comes from you, who is Jesus Christ, your Son. That in the face of Christ, through the writing of the pages of Scripture, we can see the fullness of all that you are and all that you have ever been and all that you ever will be, knowing that everything that is glorious about you has been shown at the cross. And that everything that you've ever accomplished in creative history, Father, has pointed us to that. To that moment, to that person, to that perfect sacrifice who is... Not just the Lamb that takes away our sins, but the High Priest who has finished interceding for us forevermore. But Father, who is drawing us and drawing others who belong to you to the truth of this glorious, good, loving grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please come take...